Greetings and salutations. Welcome. Glad you're here tonight. Thank you for joining us and uh, being a part of our little Hapax Legomenon that we have been doing for the month of January here in 24. We've been looking at the Hapax, Greek for heard one time. Words that appear one time in the Greek New Testament and don't appear again. We've broken the rules already in that sometimes we don't do simply one word. We'll do a couple of hapex. We've also done some that appear nowhere else at all. And we've done some that appear um, only in that spot in the Bible, but also in a classical literature. Tonight's is an example of a word that is like that. It's a word that appears one time in the New Testament. It also does appear in classical Greek literature elsewhere, but never again in the New Testament. Um, I want to jump straight to my title tonight, uh, Rhyme Time. Tonight we're going to take a look at a word in the Greek that the author intentionally rhymes with another word, and we don't see it in the English, because English and Greek are nowhere near one another, and words don't always translate out of one language to the other well anyway, as we have found many times when we study the Bible. But they also don't, they certainly don't necessarily... Well, they rarely translate to a rhyme, um, to where the word in Greek might rhyme with another word in Greek. It's probably not good odds that those two words in the English are going to rhyme with one another. Um, these are close, but not, not to the point that it would have hit the ear in the Greek. Um, also, tonight we will take a little different tact as well. I'm going to share a word with you um, that is a hapax, but then when we are sufficiently settled on that word and what we, can, what we feel like it means and how it applies to the text, uh, we are going to break that word down and let the prefix lead us into another hapex for next week. So we will return to a hapex that uses the same prefix. I'm going to do some of that work tonight to sort of prepare us for a word. So in a way, this is a two-parter, but not really. We're going to cover the whole word tonight, but it gets you ready for where we're going to go next week. Philippians. We go to the Apostle Paul and his letter to the Philippians, beginning in chapter 3, and I want to read, to start with tonight, only two verses, and I'm going to, we're going to, we're going to handle this word, take care of this word, but we're also going to use this the way we have, which is a vehicle. These words are not, knowing these words in the Greek aren't like enhancing your relationship with Jesus. I understand that. This isn't what you do on a Sunday morning come into church and someone teach you a one-time Greek word so that you can know it. No, um, I don't like to do that either. I think these are cool. Some of them are quirky. Some of them don't make a lot of sense. I'm trying to teach the ones that, that allow me a vehicle to say something else. They are merely the, the door into a lesson. And you'll see pretty quickly tonight what that lesson is probably going to be. Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. I want to let this stay there and just, this contains our apex. This also contains the heartbeat of what we're going to do tonight because you obviously see circumcision is a central figure of Paul's statement to the Philippians. And in doing so, we're going to run off to another passage that Paul uses uh, that, that um, extensively looks at circumcision. But, but this also has some other stuff in here that, I, that are important. Beware of dogs, 
beware of evil workers, and then beware of the mutilation. So Paul obviously has laid out a little trilogy uh, as he introduces this idea of what true circumcision is versus what Paul considers some pseudo false version of circumcision. For the record, we're not reading the entire third chapter. Right after this, Paul goes into his little bio where he says, hey, if anybody should have confidence in the flesh, I should. You know, and then he tells where he, how he was raised and the fact that he was a Pharisee, the fact that he, he felt like he kept the law as well as any person on the earth could keep it. He says, if anybody can boast after the flesh, I could boast after the flesh because I did the righteousness according to the law. Um, concerning zeal, I persecuted the church. Um, he, he, he goes through his, his sort of spiritual resume, none of which includes Jesus. And it's not Paul saying, I'm proud of all of these things. It's Paul saying, if being proud of what you do in the natural, in the religious fleshly realm, was a qualifier, I'm more qualified than any of you readers. But just to show you that I don't think any of those are qualifiers, I'm going to throw all of that out. All of that, he says, I consider dung. It's just in my past. It's, that's the context. That's Philippians 3. That's where Paul is going. Um, I did a book a few years ago called Righteous Saul versus Righteous Paul that was basically built off the third chapter of Philippians where Paul looks at the righteousness he had when he was Jewish Saul versus the righteousness he espouses or he teaches now that he's the Apostle Paul. They're the same guy, but they're not the same guy. And that's Paul's point, is that I used to be this way, now I'm this way. And so circumcision becomes the, the sort of the fulcrum around which he makes that argument. Um, but he has the beware of dogs and the beware of evil workers as sort of his lead-in to get you up, up to it. And beware of dogs is an odd one. Of course, it's allegorical. Paul's not warning you off of actual dogs. Although we lose the, the warning a little bit here uh, because of our treatment of pets in our culture. We don't look at this verse the way Paul meant it. We say, we see beware of dog. We see some snarling, vicious guard dog that jumps at the end of his chain and guards a house. Um, that's not in his culture at all. The dog was not... Um, in, in Hebrew culture, the dog was an unclean animal. And, and so Hebrew people were not known to keep dogs as pets in the way that the modern culture does for sure, in that they would live in the house. That didn't happen. Even in that they lived outside the house, they, didn't, they weren't considered possessions. Dogs were the trash eaters on the edge of the camp. Uh, the dog and the hog are referred to in the same sentence sometimes in, in that literature that day because they both ate the refuse. They both ate what was left over. And that was one of the reasons why you didn't eat pig if you were in Hebrew culture. It had little to do with protein value or fat content. It was, did you see what they are eating? You're not going to eat what they're eating, are you? And that was the, that's the whole point why they stayed away from that. Well, the dog was much the same way. Uh, Peter even uses it in his letter about people that go back to their sin or go back to the way they used to be as a dog, quote unquote, as a dog returns to its vomit. A, a statement that means exactly what it sounds like. It's going back to what you used to be would be going back to something that you've hopefully gotten rid of. Why would you go back to that which is rotting and that which is dead? And so just another way of saying, and so Paul's not talking about dog at the end of a chain, guard dog, um, but rather 
something unclean, something that now he views as impure. Now he views it as something outside the camp, something peripheral, something to stay away from, something no one would pet, something no one would bring into their lives. And the evil worker is a Seems pretty obvious, but it's also got its roots in the Psalms because the Psalms talk about steering clear of, I'm, that's my phrase, but staying away from the evildoer, not associating with the one who lives their life in an evil manner. And so I, I point those out to get you up to the mutilation because the mutilation, it doesn't make a lot of sense to, to talk about um, beware of the mutilation because no one walks around mutilating people or in Paul doesn't say, beware of being mutilated. So what is he talking about? This is our apex for the night. The word mutilation, sometimes interpreted or translated in your English as incision, sometimes concision. I think maybe the King James uses that. The Greek word, katatomi, which is literally a cutting into, so a notch or a groove. So it's, it's not a slice, that's a different Greek word, it's not a cutting off. That's a different Greek word. We'll actually see that one in a little bit. It's gashed into like a piece of wood that, imagine an ax that chops out a wedge on a log. So it's a specific word. It's not a word that you would line up with circumcision because you would talk about being cut you wouldn't talk about being cut in two. So Paul picks the word on purpose because the word for circumcision is the Greek word paratomi. Katatomi, paratomi. Paul's actually not talking about mutilation. He's talking about circumcision. Paul uses a rhyming word in the Greek, a word that is close to the word he needs, but rhymes. So he's it's like a songwriter or a poet. It's not the word that you would use in everyday lingo, but it's a word that rhymes with the word I'm, with the word I'm emphasizing, and it's close enough. And so there's a little bit of a wink here by Paul. The readers of Greek would have caught this. It's not quite the right word to use because no one looked at circumcision as mutilation. But the word rhymes with the word that Paul wants, circumcision. And so Paul is being a bit humorous. He's being a bit clever. He's using a little rhyme. But because he puts it behind dogs and evil workers, he means it. He's, he's laid out a word that's way too big for what he needs. It's, it's, it's not quite the right word, but it's Paul's way of saying, I'm taking this circumcision thing way more serious than some of you are. This is, this is the dog at the edge of the camp. These are, the, these are evil workers. They're doing more than cutting you, they're mutilating you, they're gashing into you, they're, they're opening a wound by which it, infection and bleeding out is possible. It's Paul's way of saying, don't treat it as mere circumcision, don't treat it as a mere religious symbol, it's far bigger than just some form of religious symbol. And that's why he said, we are the circumcision. I'll reread that third verse. We are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, who rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Put that up one more time if you could, that Philippians 3.3. 3. So if you're beware of the dogs and the evil workers, beware of the mutilation, 
We are the actual circumcision. So beware of that which is, it's calling itself circumcision, but it's really not. He goes, if you want to see the real deal, it's those who worship. And then this is the word that you need. Notice the contrasting words at the end of second word of line three, spirit, last word of the fourth line, flesh. That's Paul's contrast. We who worship the God in, in spirit, we rejoice in Christ. We don't have confidence in the flesh. Those are two opposing things, the realm of the flesh and the realm of the spirit. So Paul is claiming there's a true circumcision, which is the realm of the spirit versus a fleshly circumcision, which Paul says, now I call that mutilation. It's because I'm going I'm to ramp up how you should see that as being far bigger than just a religious ceremony, but being an act of the flesh versus an act of the spirit. But there is a real deal. There's a real deal in, in opposition to the fake. So, and I say all of that through the lens of where Philippians goes because you need to know who's talking to you. You need to know that it's Paul who was Saul. This man is a Jew who has not left Judaism. Sometimes I think we think that. We mess that up, I think, sometimes as Christians, as we go, well, these guys left Judaism and went to Christianity. They didn't look at it that way. They didn't look at it like, I'm leaving Judaism and going to... First of all, they didn't call it Christianity anyway. They were Jews who had found their Messiah. And so Paul, Paul's path-breaking because Paul comes along to try and parse out the things that make you a follower of Jesus versus those things that identified you as Jewish. But you can't undo circumcision. <laughs> it's a done deal. So what do you do now having these physical markers of Judaism? What, how do we interpret that in light of who we are in Christ? To do that, and I told you, all this was is a vehicle. It's a vehicle to get me to something else. So I want to take you to Galatians 5. Galatians is a book that we haven't done the verse-to-verse -verse here on Tuesdays. It's, it's worth it. it, it it's, um, it's, it's, an, it's a fascinating letter. I don't want to get lost here, but it's a, Galatians is one of those letters that probably give you as much insight into the, to the mindset of Paul as how he felt about his fellow laborers. Um, it gives you a very human glimpse of Paul as much as any of Paul's epistles. And by human, I mean flawed. When I say that, I mean Because it's easy to put these guys on a pedestal and think, well, they didn't make any mistakes. And this is, you know, it came straight out of heaven and right through Paul's pen. And Galatians is evidence, as much as anything Paul writes, that, that uh, our humanity interferes some, from time to time. And so there's moments in Galatians where you go, oh, Paul, I don't know if you should have said that, or I, I think you could have had a little more tact. And then there's moments in Galatians where Paul sings the sweetest music the New Testament's ever seen and, and truly lays out several verses that would belong in the pantheon. If you had to say, what are Paul's greatest things he ever wrote, there'd be two or three of them from Galatians, without a doubt. And, and you could argue they're at the very top of the list. So it's a book of contrasts, and it's a, it's a fascinating little letter. And Paul, you can feel the steam building in Paul. He's got these moments of great release in which he gives you this beautiful prose. 
And then the steam builds and you can feel Paul getting hot. He's like, he's getting mad at, at something. You can feel he, the way he's writing, he's churning towards this greater thing. And then, and then sometimes he'll, right in the middle of that, like, like crushing a piece of coal until a diamond falls out, he drops this, this great nugget on you. Um, chapter five is one of those moments. You can feel the pressure. You can feel Paul in Galatians 5 sort of building this case. He's, he's almost unnaturally angry in Galatians 5 at circumcision. Um, and it makes me wonder if Paul was beginning to see circumcision as, a, as one of the last bastions of the law that Jewish Christians were bringing over into their Christianity because they were having children and going back into circumcision. For, for, for Paul, that was more than a medical procedure. And it was more than just a cultural habit. Paul started to see circumcision as a marker in which you, by having your eight-day-old son circumcised, you believed he was one of the people of God because he belonged to Abraham. And the longer into this Paul goes, the more offended he gets at that. The more offended he gets at the idea that you could simply circumcise a boy and now he's one of the people of God. And Paul, Paul it, his whole argument is, why do we need Jesus? Like, what's the point now of us claiming we have found our Messiah if you, can, you, you are still marked as the people of God by what you do? Then what's the point of having Jesus? And you feel that build. It swells like waves coming in and out through the book of Galatians where Paul really finds it and then he backs off and then he goes at it again. So watch Galatians 5. This is not going to be the kind of thing we, could do, we would do if we were doing a Tuesday on this. Uh, or if we were doing a regular series on this, you know me, we'd be one verse a week for, you know, six months. But uh, we don't have that kind of time. So this is the condensed version of Galatians 5, and we'll take a little break here and there. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty where which, by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Some alternate translations. Um, it is for freedom that we have been set free. Pretty good way of saying you are free for the very fact that freedom is the right of those who live in the kingdom of God. So that the kingdom declares you to be free. So stand fast in it, which means that it's not going to be easy. Because if it were easy, you wouldn't be need told to stand fast. So there's going to be forces that pull you out of the liberty that you've come into now that you know Christ. Don't be entangled. And this is a key word as far as I'm concerned. Don't be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Yokes are what you put on two oxen so they can work the same row. You usually yoke an inferior oxen with a superior ox so that the inferior ox watches how it's done and learns from the better. This is why Jesus says, yoke with me, watch how I do it, and you'll find rest for your soul. It's Jesus going, you're the inferior, I'm the superior, don't worry, I'll pull most of the weight. But I'll show you how to walk the line. I'll show you how to do what it is you're called to do. And so, but, so Paul uses the same analogy. He likes this yoke analogy. He uses it in the Corinthian letter as well. But here he says, don't be entangled again in a yoke of bondage. Don't link up with that thing that doesn't let you turn when you need to turn. You're stuck now. You've got this yoke on and it's pulling you down this course. And you're going to have to stand fast because it's going to be easy to fall back again. Again's key because Paul feels like you used to be there. Remember, he's speaking to Jews. He's speaking to his Hebrew family. 
And, he's, and so they know what he's doing. He's equating everything they had under Moses as being a bondage. Okay, so don't be entangled again. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you, and, and so Paul doesn't mince any words. He goes right at it. If you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. I want to remind you, the man that writes this is circumcised. So for, we got to take this through the lens of a man who has come to a revelation knowledge of liberty in Christ and is speaking to new converts, people coming to the faith or people who... Uh, yeah, people who've come to the faith and are holding on to what Paul calls your old yoke of bondage. And so he just says circumcision is that sign. It's that external sign. And if you've got to go back to that, then what's the point of, of putting on Christ? It almost feels a little overkill for Paul to go this far, but he's going, he's going to double down. Verse 3. I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised. He's a debtor to keep the whole law. You've become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Okay, not time to do these the justice they need. I, I know I penned myself trying to put this in here tonight about circumcision, but I felt like even just a precursory understanding of it would really help to get this mutilation down and what Paul, the, the, the gravitas behind that phrase mutilation, why Paul uses that, a, a, like cutting, like pulling a chunk of your flesh out. Uh, versus the word he could have used. He really is passionate about this. This is a really big deal for him. Such a big deal that he actually feels like the cutting is an estrangement. It's a, it's a pulling away from Christ. Because, and why? Because in the Jewish culture, circumcision marked you as a recipient of the covenant. The, the man who was circumcised, would his seed, when he bore a child, his seed had to pass through the sign of his circumcision. It linked his sons and daughters with the past. It was a, I'm going to use a word that wouldn't have applied, but we Christians like this word. It would have been salvation for their kids to come in through the sign of circumcision. It was a redemption of flesh and blood, born of the will of man, born of the flesh. Remember John's rebuttal? When John in John chapter 1 goes, he who is born of Christ is not born of the will of man and is not born of blood and is not born of flesh, but is born of the spirit and of the water. It's John saying what Paul's saying, and that is that you don't get birthed into this. So, so for Paul, circumcision becomes a problem because the people espousing it are doing it to link them to Abraham, to link them back to something bigger than themselves. And Paul says, if you're going to do that, then why do you need Christ? And then he says, you, you, if you attempt to do this, it's actually an attempt to be justified by an action. It's thinking that the doing makes you a receiver. And if doing makes you a receiver, then you're justified. And we definitely get this in grace circles because we like this phrase. Now you're trying to be justified by law and you fall on from grace. And so Paul's definition of falling from grace is not sinning. Paul's definition of falling from grace is moving away from your identity being solely in faith in Christ and putting your identity in a justification that is wrapped up in one way or the other in the law. For Paul, that's circumcision. Verse 5. For we through the Spirit... Okay, remember Paul's contrast in Philippians. Spirit and flesh. We through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of the righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither 
circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. You have circumcision. Paul says, I think you're estranged from Christ because you're trying to be justified by the law. We in the Spirit, this is a different camp, we who through the Spirit believe by faith that we're made righteous, we're a different camp than you. Once again, Paul is circumcised. So this isn't just about the physicality of it. It's the mentality of it. It's putting your faith in the act. It's putting your confidence in the flesh versus your confidence or your faith in the realm of the Spirit. And he goes, whether you're circumcised or not avails or means nothing but what really matters is faith working through love. I, I, I say it this way. Circumcision or uncircumcision is actually an external act or lack thereof. These are things on the outside. Equate those things with actions in the law. Externals don't work. Why don't they work? Well, they don't work because they're not sufficient to judge the heart. And they're not necessarily reflections of an inward transformation. You can... Let's get away from circumcision. You can fix up the outside and look Christian. <laughs> and we do it all the time. In fact, we think that's what you're supposed to do with new converts. Like there's some stuff you need to quit doing and quit wearing and places you need to quit going and stuff you need to quit saying. Why? Because, you've, because that's not who you are anymore. And that's fine if what changes on the outside is a reflection of, of the fact that you're not who you used to be. But we know we don't do it that way. Instead, we almost always start to change the outside hoping that it will stick. You know, like, hey, you accepted Jesus. You got to do this, 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 and this. Instead of letting the inward transformation of the heart. So you can see someone who has it all down and you don't know their heart. And you don't have to be in church very long to figure this out. This is why we go, these people are a bunch of hypocrites. They all act one way and they live... Okay, because you walked into the room thinking you could determine who people are in Christ by how they dressed. Half of it's on you. I mean, the reality is half of it's on me every time I go, that guy's a fake. Well, why were you so impressed with how much Bible he could quote? Or how he dressed or how he talked or how he walked. I mean, you sold, he sold it to you. When you walked in, you can get mad at him for putting it on, but the reality is, is that your, your job is to discern in the spirit, not the natural. And we cut each other down if we judged people. If we caught another believer judging somebody because of the way they dressed, we go, well, that guy doesn't look saved. <laughs> okay, fine. We don't need to do that. But we... we we don't catch that we do it the other way all the time. And we make assumptions about people because. And so we can make positive and negative assumptions because they fly the right flag and they got the right bumper sticker. So we make an assumption about this must be what they're like. This must be who they are. And circumcision or uncircumcision is just Paul's way of going. Whatever you got going on on the outside isn't changing the inside. It's not a reflection of whether or not you've actually changed. It's not a reflection of whether or not you're actually what you say you are. But what is a reflection is faith. Paul uses the phrase faith working through. And, and I put the word in because they're the same there. So you could, it's a preposition in the Greek. And so you can say it's faith working in love or it's faith working through love. And faith working through love is internal but it has an external expression. So if faith, because faith is not something you can see and touch, 
and feel. But if faith is working through love, that comes from the inside. In short, it's hard to fake love. Across time, it's hard to fake love. It's easy to fake love in, sh- in bursts. It's hard to fake love very long. Circumcision's not going anywhere. You put that out there so that it looks like you belong. You can fake that forever. It <laughs> doesn't have to actually belong. It's already, it's already, you've already been mutilated. Paul's words. Because he sees it as more than cut. He sees you've been torn. You've been sort of sold a bill of goods. You know, back to the text. Next verse is verse 7. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This is, our, this is a verse that lets us believe that Paul's talking to a people that he helped lead to Christ. He watched their conversion, and he knew they had it. He felt like this Galatian people had it. But something has happened. Someone has come in and sown some discord. Someone's come in and brought them back to the law. And this is why we do have to be ever vigilant as believers, that we continue to pour, people, pour the goodness and the grace and the love of the Father into people and continue to, continue to express to them that righteousness comes only by faith because it becomes too easy for people to have... have tear sown among their wheat, so to speak. Too easy to, to be pulled back into the yoke of bondage. But who, who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion doesn't come from him who calls you. I mean, in other words, God didn't do this. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. That eighth verse to me is so critical. This persuasion doesn't come from the one who calls you. Be careful, because a lot of times, external actions and holinesses will be called out by the people performing them as if God told me to do it. So they'll say, God told me to do this. God told me to dress this way. God told me to say that. God told me I'm not supposed to go over there. God took, and listen, I don't fight people in personal conviction. I don't feel like it's my right to say to somebody, oh, that's stupid. I'm not going to say that to anybody. If you say to me, I don't feel like I should do that. I'm going to go, okay, then maybe you shouldn't do that. You know, that's, but don't then turn to me and say, well, I don't think you should do it either. Because that's where you've started to claim that it wasn't just your conviction. It was God who told you, and if it's good enough for you, it's good enough for me. And now I'm supposed to do... And Paul won't have it either. Paul goes, the persuasion that you're under is not from the one who called. So don't call it God told me to do this. Because if God tells you to do it, it's got to look like Jesus. Plain and simple. If God told you it's got to look like Jesus, it's got to, it's got to have its basis in Christ and how Christ does it. And, and it's got to be in line with how he finished the work. So it doesn't come from the one who called you. A little leaven leavens a whole lump, a word that just means if you drop a little yeast in the bread, the whole bro- loaf rises. You don't have to do it proportional to the size of the bread. That would blow the house up. You just need a little bit of yeast and the whole loaf rises. And so be on guard. He goes for a little bit of the areas in which you're starting to trust your flesh. A little bit of the areas in which you think, oh, if I do this, God will bless me. If I do that, God will favor me. If I do this, he'll forgive me. Because it doesn't take much, just a little bit. Nine, ten. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. Paul doesn't know who's doing it. Or if he does, this is one of the classier moments for Paul. Because Paul is not beyond calling people out by name in his epistles. But in this moment in Galatians 5, he goes, mm, whoever it is, hey, he's got to bear his own judgment. I, brother, if I still preach circumcision, why would I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I don't have time 
to, to, to get into the offense of the cross because, man, it, is it ever offensive. Let's leave that. Twelve. I could wish that those who trouble you even cut themselves off. Ah, clever Paul again. Because Paul here uses the Greek word for cut off. And he, you, he knows what he's doing and the astute reader knows what he's doing. They've been trying to get you to circumcise so that you can determine your value based upon the externals. I wish they'd cut themselves off. And heavy wink, you know. Like, as they're trying to cut you off, I really just wish they'd accidentally cut themselves off. And you make your own assumptions as to where that cutting takes place. But it's, it's a clever English translator that put an exclamation point. That's not in the Greek. They don't have exclamation points in the Greek. That is a pretty clever job by the English translator to go, you should probably throw an exclamation point in there. Maybe a smiley face. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, only don't use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. A lot, a lot there. We'll leave it. 14. This is a good way to close this. For all the law, all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So don't worry, because I'm not, I'm not pulling you away from the law. I'm pulling you away from the law for righteousness. I'm pulling you away from the law as the establishment of who you are. I'm not pulling you away from the law. He goes, in fact, you'd fulfill the whole law. Forget circumcision. He goes, you'd fulfill the whole law if you just start loving each other. You think you're fulfilling the law by circumcising your kids. Because in Paul's economy, I think if you put Galatians and Romans and Corinthians together and you throw them in a blender and spin out, here's what I think Paul sounds like as far as I'm concerned. Hey, start small, like circumcising your kid. Next thing you know, you're back to the mosaic law of dietary and sanitary and sacrificial laws. I mean, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Kingdom of God that you're in has nothing to do with food and drink, but you'll be fighting over it before long, and you'll be telling people what they can and can't drink and what they can and can't eat, and then you'll start telling people what festivals they're supposed to celebrate and what holy days they're supposed to live by and what new moons they're supposed to observe, and you'll do it to your own detriment. And some of you will then tell people they can't eat meat offered to idols, and some of you won't care at all about it. And I know I've just mishmashed three Pauline letters, but it's, it's the same concept. Paul keeps going back to that argument over and over again. But at the end of the day, Paul says, I'm not getting you out of the law. I'm getting you out of the law for your righteousness, but I'm not pulling you away from the core of the law because the core of the law is love your neighbor as yourself. But listen, if all you're going to do is bite and devour one another, beware, it's going to swallow you up. So what comes around goes around in this instance. If you bite and devour... Go back to our word. Here's our apex. That was, my, that was my quick version of Paul's circumcision argument. Okay? Let's set this prefix up um, and, and, and try to land with this. Paul used in Philippians 3.2, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation, the incision, the concision, beware of the catatome. For Paul, it's a word he's setting you up to rhyme with circumcision. Catatome is a compound word. It's a Greek compound of the Greek words kata and temno, a word that means to cut. Okay, And I know temno and tomi are not the same thing, but be, and this is because of tense. And so when a word gets put into a different tense, sometimes the lingo changes, and sometimes you don't have to have the word. The word doesn't always, when placed into a compound, the word doesn't always spell out or say out the way that it would separate. My favorite compound word is baseball because it's the world's greatest sport. 
This is an inarguable fact, I feel like. So we're not going to argue about it. And no one calls it bases ball, even though there's three bases in a plate. No one calls it bases in a plate ball. No one calls it plate ball, baseball. Say it in the singular, even though there's bases and a ball, because the compound words don't always hold their exact character Okay, when they come together. I hope you liked how inarguable <laughs> that, that was. So we'll leave it at that. It's coming around, spring training, very soon. Kata. So, so the words, when they come together, it's a little bit different. But kata, this is the prefix I want to set you up for. I'm going to help land it tonight and set you up for next week. Because to me, kata is a fascinating prefix. Kata in the Greek actually means according to one's own or after the manner. But this is a word that appears in classical Greek. So it's not just confined to the Bible. Kata is, pops up all over the Koine Greek world. And it's a preposition denoting a motion or a diffusion from a higher space to a lower space. In other words, it's a word that in classical Greek is down from. When kata goes in front of a word, it adds a negative connotation to whatever the root is. And so whatever's coming, then you can assume that it comes from a high place to a low place. It's a descending. So it, it's kind of looking down on or cutting down. So a katatome, a down cut. That sounds, uh, sounds a little odd when we try to say it that way. Um, so let's use a different word. I want to use a word that's not a hapax, okay? And what I mean by that is it's a word that pops up several times in the New Testament, but it's one of the cool Greek words that gets translated into English that we think means one thing, but it means something else, okay? Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There's now, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What an amazing verse, Right? For the record, the last line's not there in the Greek. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's not in the Greek. So, for the record, the Greek of Romans 8.1 is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay. That last part was added by translators. It was stolen from verse 4. It was interpolated into verse 1 because they just couldn't fathom that you should tell people there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Sounds like really good news. And the reason that they couldn't fathom it is because they understood condemnation even better than we do <laughs> because the word condemnation is a compound of the greek words kata and krino now you already know that kata's down descended high place to low place krino is the word for judge or judgment so when condemnation is used this condemnation then would be according to one's own judgment or simply a downward judgment cutting you down there is therefore now no cutting you down in christ jesus there there is judgment and this is where we get a little messed up even in grace circles we'll go there's no judgment in him we go mm, careful you're you've come to a mountain where god the judge lives there's no condemnation in him see there's no down judgment. There's no cutting you down in him. He can't cut you down. He's already finished the work on your behalf. He's not counting your transgressions against you. But yet you're going to stand in front of the judgment seat of Christ. You're not going to stand in front of the condemnation seat of Christ. 
Please get the difference. They are not the same word in the Greek. You are not standing in front of the katakrino seat of Christ where he condemns everything you ever did. No. And how do we know this? We will, we will stop tonight with John, where all of this started for us a few years ago. It was good old John. So here's a couple of passages from John. 3.16, greatest, most popular verse in the world, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But I think 17 is even better. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So Jesus does not enter the world to condemn in his first advent, he doesn't even enter the world to judge because later in John, he goes, my father gave all judgment to me. I'm not here to judge anybody. But that doesn't mean that judgment isn't part of what he does. I'm going to show you in a moment in John. But parse the difference, man, between condemnation and judgment. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world. He didn't come into the world to do a down judgment. In other words, Christ doesn't know how to look down on people. Christ's judgment is only to lift off of people whatever's not really them. He judges all of our deeds, good or evil, at the judgment seat of Christ. He doesn't condemn our deeds. He judges them. He parses the difference in that which is good and that which is evil. This is the fan that's in his hand, thoroughly purging his floor, separating the wheat from the chaff. This is Christ burning away that which is not us. This is how I interpret, depart from me, I never knew you. It's Jesus looking at all the parts of you that aren't you and going, get out of here. I don't know who you are. And I think that starts now, if you'll let it. And I hope it never ends. Just to be really honest with you, I hope it never ends. I was out running this morning and I was thinking about Lazarus' tomb, John 11. Jesus waits four days. My whole life, my whole ministry, I've taught... Jesus waits for it. I'm just going to throw this out here in front of you, okay? Do with this what you want. If you don't like this, just, just throw it into the ditch. This was my musings today. My whole life I thought, you know, Jesus waits four days so that Lazarus is really dead. And then he shows up and then they put their trust in him. And that's all right. It's all right. It's all right. Then Jesus wept, John eleven thirty five. 35. It's not only the shortest verse in the Bible, but it's one of the most controversial. Why does Jesus cry? Well, you know, well, he cries because... We cry because it hurts when we lose people. True, true. But what if, what if Jesus waits four days so that Lazarus is really dead? And he cries because Martha says you're too late. Jesus is never too late. Really dead doesn't stop Jesus. And you go, well, yeah, I can see that. But, but we always just think of that as resurrection. Like, oh, well, he's really dead. Jesus can resurrect him. But what if he's still crying over us today, going, why do my people think death's the end? Why do they think? Because we'll, we even say it. We go, well, they died. It's too late. And I wonder if Jesus isn't crying, going, why are you guys still saying it's too late? I don't know. It's just a possibility. It excites me. It makes me think about that very possibility. And so his judgment then, has to be righteous. And I'll close with that in John 5.30. I can of myself do nothing. If I hear it, I judge. So see, he is the judge. 
But look at his judgment. It's righteous because I don't seek my own will. I seek the will of the Father who sent me. Jesus doesn't say it's condemnation. In fact, when faced with the opportunity to condemn, Jesus can't help himself. John 8, neither do I condemn thee. These guys are just looking down on you. I can't look down on you. Go and sin no more. Maybe the, maybe the key to not sinning or living free of whatever it is that binds you is the knowledge that God isn't looking down on you. In any case, our hapax tonight is essentially Paul saying, going back to what you were, going to anything that is an external expression by which you think you are justified or it shows out your justification is a mutilation of your soul. It's a mutilation of who you are. It's worse than just calling it circumcision. It's mutilation, concision, incision. Bow your heads with me if you would. Just let this wash over you a little bit. Let it wash over you that you have a good father. Let it wash over you that you have a Jesus who isn't requiring you to go back to any of the formulas of self and flesh and performance and religion and that to do so is a mutilation of who you are. But he's yoked together with you. Neither does he condemn you. Kata krino. Father, thank you tonight for this word and thank you for the joy I've had today in just thinking about this. This little rhyming words that Paul did, that's so much bigger than that. That's just the wink in the story. The truth is, is that this thing runs like deep, cool water. Paul's saying, don't go back to where you were. To go back to where you were is to cut off. It's to, it's to, it's to cut into a piece of who you are now. And he even goes so far, Lord. He goes so far in a way that I don't even really fully wrap my mind around that to go back to it is to estrange or to divorce Christ. And I know, based on the fact that you never divorce us, that's us looking at you that way, not you looking at us that way. And so I, I, I pray, Father, we have a fresh revelation of this, that we stop the mutilation. We have a fresh revelation of the fact that we aren't condemned and that this propels us into what you want to say to us in the next session. And we think in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.